Good morning, church. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Genesis 28 this morning. Genesis 28 through 32 this morning, we're going to walk through the entire narrative of Jacob. Not the entire narrative, but where we left off last week, we will bring to completion this morning. We're in a series entitled Genesis Act 3. Act 3 of the book of Genesis encompasses Isaac. It encompasses Jacob. And we will spend the majority of our time with the story of Joseph. But this morning, as we think about Jacob, my question to you is, is what do we do with our failures? How do we view our failures? For, for some of us in this room, failure is absolutely debilitating. It, it paralyzes us to inaction lest we be perceived as failing. For some of us in this room, our failures in our past, recent past, distant past seem to confine us, define us. But is there any hope in the midst of our failures? You know, it's interesting, Thomas Edison supposedly in the completion of the light bulb and invention took him over a thousand mistakes, a thousand failures until he got to a functioning light bulb. A reporter is said to have asked him, what does it feel like to fail a thousand times in the invention of the light bulb? And he said, I didn't fail a thousand times. It was that the invention of the light bulb took a thousand steps to get to. Now, how do you think of your failures? There are some of you in this room that feel confined by them. There are some of you that feel defined by them. But what if I was to tell you that as a follower of Jesus, that our failures do not have to define us nor confine us, but that God in his sovereign plan desires to use your failures, my failures, our failures, to refine us into the image of his son Jesus. What if I was to tell you that God's word gives us hope in the face of all of our failures? In Genesis chapter 28, we pick up the story of Jacob. If you don't know this story, if you weren't with us last week, let me remind you God made a promise in Genesis chapter 12 to Jacob's grandfather that he was going to bless Abraham and they were going to be a, a, a great nation. And he was going to give them land and lineage. And that promise goes from Abraham. It goes to Isaac. Now it comes to Jacob. So the promise is still out there. Will Jacob now take the baton? And will he be one who has lineage and land that is before him? Well, in the midst of Jacob's life, his name actually means deceiver. So what we discover is he lives up to his name. So where we left Jacob last week was, is he's cheated his brother out of his birthright with a pot of stew, and he's tricked his father Isaac in blessing him, Jacob, instead of the rightful one to receive the blessing, the oldest Esau. So birthright and blessing, Jacob has deceived Esau and Isaac out of. And so what does he do as a deceiver? He has to get out of town. He's got to leave the land. 
And he's got to go to a place that his mom says, you need to find your uncle, my brother. This is going to be a place of refuge. And in the midst of him running, he's completely alienated. He's completely alone. He doesn't even have provision for this one-month journey. He, he lies down to sleep on a stone. And as he lies down to sleep, God appears to him in what we know famously to be Jacob's ladder. And then we pick up. Jacob's response to God's promise that even Jacob, if you have to go away from the land, I'm going to follow you there. Even in the midst of your failure, I'm going to go with you and I'm going to bring you back into this land. The promises of land and lineage are more potent than your failures. And you can imagine in this moment, this is a great time for Jacob to say, thank you, God. This is a great time for Jacob to break out in song and to sing the doxology. And in this moment, we see Jacob's response, a portrait of conditional obedience. Genesis 28, starting in verse 18, reads his response. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I may come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. If you do this, then you will be my God. And this stone, verse 22, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. Then then I'll really worship you. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now you notice what Jacob is doing here. Do you notice that Jacob in this moment, his first response to God's unconditional promise to him, is to say two letters, one word, if. It's it's like an Old Testament version of let's make a deal. Jacob bargaining with God. If you, God, will be with me, and if you will keep me in the way that I go, and if you will give me bread to eat, and if you will give me clothing to wear, then I will worship you. Do you know the word that wasn't in the promises that God made to Jacob? Do you know what word never appears in the promises that God had made to Jacob that he is responding to? You know what word's not there? If. God God doesn't come to Jacob and say, if you obey me, I'll bring you back into this land. If you obey me, I will give you lineage. If you do what I tell you to do, then I will give you something. There's no if in God's unconditional promises given to Jacob. And his response is, if you do it, then I'll do this. I grew up, my mom used to say there are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. What response do we give to a God who has given us his absolute best. What what response do we as Christians give to a God who would send his son 
to live a perfect life and to die a sacrificial death? Do you, do you know what words should not be in the vocabulary of our faith response? Do you know what words should be omitted in your response and my response? You know what word that we should excise out of it? It is that word if. Just two letters, but potent it is. And if we're not careful in your life and in my life, if will slip into the vocabulary of our faith response. I surrender all. All to Jesus. I surrender. If it's not too costly, if it's not too uncomfortable, if it's convenient, I surrender all, all to Jesus. I surrender. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I will go. You know what we really mean when we say that oftentimes? If you lead me to where I want to go, I'll follow. If we're honest and just did sort of a, a, an audit of the true vocabulary of our faith, I wouldn't be surprised, and nor should you be surprised, that if slips in to our vocabulary just like it does to Jacob. So surely God hears this and says, hey, listen, you did all of those things. You, you, you cheated your brother. You deceived your aging father, Isaac. And now your response to me is, if I've had enough. I, I wash my hands of you. So surely I can find someone who's not quite as obstinate, someone who is not as hard-hearted, and I will restore my promises with that person, and off I will go. But if you think that, you don't know this story. And if you think that, you don't really realize just how unconditional God's promises are. Because it gets worse with Jacob. Not only in this story do we see a portrait of conditional obedience, but we see a portrait of one of the most crooked family trees that you could possibly imagine right here in the story of Jacob. Genesis 29 through 31 is a story that I want us to overview so you can understand what happens when you live for self. When sin reigns in your life and my life, what does the product look like? Well, let me show you this story. He gets to Haran. His uncle is there. His uncle is named Laban. And Jacob has been the deceiver. His name means deceiver. But he meets his match in his uncle by the name of Laban. Do you, do you know this story? Laban has a daughter. His daughter's name is Rachel. Jacob falls in love with Rachel. So he goes to his uncle and he says, I want you, uncle, to be my father-in-law. And Laban says, that's a great plan. The wedding bridal dowry is you working for me for seven years. Love is powerful. Jacob says, surely I will do it. And so we get into this story and the honeymoon night, this deceiver by the name of Laban has another daughter named Leah, the older daughter. And he goes to Leah and says, you need to go to be with Jacob, and I'm going to hold Rachel off here. And it is the ultimate plot twist in this wedding ceremony here. And so Jacob wakes up the next day, and Leah is there, not Rachel. He goes to his father-in-law, who's actually his uncle, and says, what did you do? Jacob says, 
And Laban says, well, if you really love my daughter, Rachel, then you will work for me another seven years. Laban is not a good father-in-law. <laughs> Just, you, I've got a great father-in-law, and you do too, compared to Jacob's uncle, now his father-in-law. There's a great Rich Mullins story. Do you know the, do you know the Rich Mullins song? I hope you know Rich Mullins. He's been in heaven for 25 years. One of the greatest lyricists of this generation. And he, and he has these wonderful songs that delve into God's Word. He's got an album called The World as Best as I Remember It. And in that album, he's got a song called Jacob and Two Women. And, and the first lines are, Jacob, he loved Rachel, and Rachel, she loved him. And Leah was there for dramatic effect. <laughs> well, it's right there in the Bible, so it must not be a sin, but it sure does seem like an awfully dirty trick. Maybe it was two years ago, three years ago. I was uh, riding around with one of my sons, and I was going through this Rich Mullins phase and going back through his albums on Spotify. And this song was playing, and I was sort of zoned out. And my son, I thought, was just sort of zoned out. And he said at the end of the song, he said, Dad, what is that all about? <laughs> so, you know, like I'm a pastor and a, a dad. So surely, you know, I went to seminary for a lot of years to be able to answer these kinds of questions. So I thought about it for a second, and I said, well, son, it's really complicated, really complicated. <laughs> but that's not enough. So I said to him, you know something? You need to talk to your mom about this. <laughs> Football season is upon us, and so you need to know, dads, when you need to punt. That's all I've got to say there. You need to know when you need to punt here. So after marriage, it gets worse. You think it's complicated now? Just wait. So marriage, Jacob begins having children, and it's really complicated because Leah, she is not his favorite, but she bears children. His favorite is Rachel. Rachel is barren. So Rachel comes to him and says, here's my handmaid. You have a child with her. So we've got some complications here. Rachel eventually is able to have children, and Leah gets jealous of her sister. So Leah says, here's my handmaid. Now you can have children with her. So if you're counted at home, we've got 11 children. Eventually, they're going to be 12. We've got two mothers, and we have two surrogate mothers. It is a really dysfunctional family. And if you don't like going to family reunions, I assure you, Jacob didn't either here. So it gets worse, though. This is the thing about this story. Just when you think that Rachel and Leah not getting along and all the strife and the jealousy and the enmity that would be between them, Jacob and his father-in-law, of course, don't get along. So they begin to fight over the flocks of the herds, and they begin to fight. And so finally, God just intervenes and says, you got to get out of here. Been here long enough. Time to go. On the way out, Rachel, the daughter of of Laban steals the household gods, and so Laban is chasing them all the way back into the promised land. It is a complicated, messy, at times maybe even confusing story. And I think it's illustrative because if we're not careful, 
we will buy into Satan's sinister lie that you can live for self, you can let sin reign in your life, you can exalt I to the throne and worship yourself, and it will have no consequences for your family. It'll have no consequences whatsoever for your workplace, and it is a lie. Everything's messy about this story. Everything's complicated about this story. Everything is dysfunctional about this story. Why? Because the fruit of the Spirit is love, and it's joy, and it's peace, and it's self-control. And you know what Jacob doesn't have? He doesn't have peace because he is self-sufficient. He is saying, my way is going to be the way, and this is where it leads us. Isaiah chapter 57 is this wonderful passage that just reminds us what happens when we go down the highway of our will and our way. Isaiah says, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace. Verse 21 says, My God, for the wicked. Many of you grew up, I did, with the Charles Schultz Peanuts cartoon strips. And you've got Snoopy there, you've got Lucy there, you've got Charlie Brown there. But I was always fascinated by Pigpen. You know, you know what was always fascinating to me about Pigpen is he just had this like cloud of dirt and dust that just always followed him. Wherever he went, wherever Pigpen was, you could, you could see him coming because the dirt would follow him everywhere. The dust cloud would follow him everywhere. And here is Jacob with a cloud of chaos. Everywhere he goes, chaos is with him. Everywhere he goes, dysfunction is with him. And so it is for you and for me. Do not be misled. To think that the cloud of sin would not touch your home, your work, every aspect of your life. So you think in this moment, God looks at Jacob's story and says, you know something, this is just a little too dirty. Too much muck and too much mire. Surely there is somebody who doesn't have this many complications that I can work with here. But if you thought that, you just don't know how powerful and potent God's promises are because we read in Genesis 32 a portrait of hope after our failures. So Jacob's fleeing his father-in-law. He is homeward bound. Homeward bound, Jacob is going. But there's no music that's playing for him. There, there's no loved one that is waiting for him. You know who's waiting for him? Esau is waiting for him. And Esau has been longing to get revenge upon his brother, his deceiving, sinister brother. And so Jacob knows this. And you know what Jacob does? He says, I've got to send some things ahead. So I pacify the homicidal wrath of my brother. So he sends ahead sheep, and he sends ahead goats, and he sends ahead camels, and he sends ahead donkeys, and he sends ahead cattle. What is he trying to do? He's trying to buy off Esau. What is he trying to do? He's trying to do what he's always done. He has thought when he's backed into a corner, he can get himself out of that corner. 
And the way that he's going to do it is the only currency that he knows, and it's a currency of manipulation. But it doesn't stop there. He realizes that his brother has harmful intents, not only for him, but probably for anyone that is with him. So he has all of these family members now. He has two surrogate mothers and two wives. And so he divides up. He literally divvies up the way they're going to go back into the promised land. And he puts at the front lines of the potential battle with his brother Esau, he puts the handmaids and all of their children at the front lines. Then he says, Leah, you and your children can go behind them. Then he puts Rachel and Joseph beside him. He literally gives a hierarchy of least to my favorite as he goes back into the promised land. Jacob is really not a good dad. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you this. Uh, one, uh, one thing that will happen with your children is that they're going to ask you one day, which one of us is most important to you, mom and dad? And it's never the right answer to say, well, if I'm going into battle, the first one of you that I wouldn't mind losing, I'm going to put out in the front lines here. You never answer that way. And this is what Jacob is doing here. He's not a good dad. He's not a good husband. He's not a good brother. Surely his failures are final for him. Surely there's nothing else to be done with this kind of person right here. He gets to the edge of the promised land. And then we read one of the most famous stories in all the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 32. Starting in verse 22. The same night, he arose and he took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and he crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and he sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, just like he was a few chapters ago in Jacob's ladder. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said... I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. You've striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. If we were looking for dramatic, mysterious stories of the Bible, look no further than this story of Jacob wrestling in the dark of the night to having this, this encounter. And you can imagine when Jacob begins this wrestling match that he feels, because there are, there are a lot of people that want to take Jacob out in a dark alley. So you can imagine in this moment, he thinks initially, oh, well, Esau's got me. Snuck into camp. This is, this is the opportunity for my brother to take me right now. You can imagine he would have thought it was Esau. Or you can imagine on the flip side, he would have thought that his father-in-law, Laban, had called him. 
There are a lot of people that want to take Jacob out in a dark alley. But in this dark alley, he meets not Esau, he meets not his father-in-law Laban, but as the story tells us, Jacob says, I have fought with God face to face, and I've lived. Now, Jacob is not a reliable narrator. What, what I mean by that, there's nothing that should make us think that Jacob is omniscient in this encounter. This is Jacob's perspective saying that I have fought with God face to face. We know from this, uh, the book of Exodus that Moses cannot see God face to face and live. We know from Hosea chapter 12, verse 4, that Hosea looks back upon this time and says, this is an angel of the Lord. And this should not uh, surprise us because we've already seen how God manifests his presence in angelic visitors going all the way back to Sodom and Gomorrah, coming to Abraham. And so Jacob is having an encounter with the presence of who he believes to be God face to face. It is the presence of God incarnate in this angel here manifesting his will and his purpose to his messenger here. And often at this point, we miss the entire point of the story. We say, look at how Jacob was so uh, persistent. Look at how he persevered. Look at how he just fought this messenger to the end. And we put Jacob as the hero of the story. But there's no way that Jacob's the hero of this story. I mean, everything that's led up to this moment is showing us that Jacob has failed and failed and failed and failed. And when he is backed into a corner, feeling like he is going to lose his life, it is in this moment that God meets him. And it is in this moment, instead of God cursing him, he blesses him. The angel of the Lord is holding back the entire time. It isn't that Jacob's really, really strong. The angel of the Lord is becoming weak to break the hard-heartedness of Jacob. It's in the moment that he touches his hip, and forevermore Jacob is going to have a limp. And can you imagine, because Jacob, all throughout the story of his life, has stood on his own two feet. He is a self-made man. And in this moment, the angel of the Lord touches his hip, and he has a limp forevermore. But it's more than just a new gate that Jacob gets out of this encounter. He gets a new name. He goes from Jacob to Israel. And we know enough about the Bible to say Abram becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. Saul on his Damascus Road encounter becomes what? Paul. So there's something about this name change that shows us a change in heart. A change in perspective. At Jacob's ladder, it was, if you do this, then I will do this. At this moment, it's no if. At this moment, we see Jacob become Israel, one who will struggle with God. One in all of his struggles has come to this place of complete desperation and complete brokenness. And God will bless him. And he blesses him by saying, no matter your failures... As a husband, no matter your failures as a son, no matter your failures as a brother, I'm still going to use you because I've made a promise, and that promise is more potent than any of your failures. It is a powerful story of unmerited grace 
and mercy coming to capture the heart of the stubborn, hard-hearted man that we know to be Jacob. And here's the truth. For any of us who follow in the footsteps of Jacob, Jacob is still imperfect. He, he is not perfect. He's still imperfect. But he trusts and he keeps God's promises, knowing that God will keep his promises. He goes into the promised land, realizing that Esau will not kill him because the promise of God is a protection upon him. And so it is for you, so it is for me. Any of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ cannot encounter the true and living God in a saving way and come away unscathed, unmoved, or unchanged by that encounter with grace and mercy. The story of Jacob becomes your story because you, as a follower of Jesus, have received a promise, a, a seal of the Holy Spirit. And that promise is, is that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That the renovation of your soul, the renovation of your heart, is not dependent upon your works and your effort, but it is dependent upon that general contractor named the Holy Spirit that never lets a job go undone. And the Holy Spirit will strive with you. The Holy Spirit will struggle with that old self because why? He does not desire to leave you unchanged and unmoved and unscathed by an encounter with him. And there is a promise that one day you will see God face to face in heaven and until that day, the Holy Spirit will wrestle with your pride. He will wrestle with your self-sufficiency. He will wrestle with your hard-heartedness. He will wrestle with your idolatry. He will wrestle with your fear until he can break you in greater dependency. When you're weak, he is strong. When you have failed, you realize he keeps his promises no matter your failure. So Jacob is a reminder to all of us as followers of Jesus that our failures are never final, that God's promises are more powerful than all of our failures. How can this possibly be true? Because the gospel is true. The gospel is this, that God has willingly blessed you and me, followers of Jesus, who deserve to be cursed. We deserve to be punished because we've all failed. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But the gospel is true that God the Father cursed someone, his son, who deserved a blessing. So the inverse has occurred in your life and in my life. The one who is perfect is the one who was cursed, and the ones of us in this room that are imperfect, we're the ones that receive the blessing. This is why your failures are not final, because the gospel is true. God's strength is displayed in the weakness and the brokenness of the cross of Christ Jesus to give to each of us the ultimate gift of forgiveness. And no matter your failure, if you name the name of Jesus, it, my friend, is never final. Let us pray. Gracious God, we come to you standing on the truth of your word. A powerful reminder 
that your promises prevail even as we wander, even as we leave the God that we love. Jacob is this powerful illustration of a tendency in all of our hearts in different ways, not often as public, not often as so realized, but all of us know what it's like to say things that we wish we could take back, to do things that we immediately regret and, and with time still hangs on to us. And we, we wonder, if the, is there a reset button? Thank you for the cross of Christ Jesus. Thank you for the forgiveness that flows so freely from your son's finished work. May all of us rest in the promises that are more powerful than all of our failures. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your powerful name that we pray. Amen.